This episode contains mature content that may not be suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. All right, Jesse, I brought you this picture circa 2005. Oh, okay, okay. Do you know who that is? Yeah, my friend Mike. Yeah. Yeah, can you describe for me, like, what was Mike like back then, like in this picture? Uh, so, yeah, so in this picture, like, I mean, he looks like a hippie. Like, he's got, like, long hair, pulled back in a ponytail, big bushy beard, that classic, like, mid-2000s post-grunge sort of clothing going on. Always had this, like, really joyful, fun-loving kind of spirit about him, like, really genuine and honest with everybody around him. This picture captures a really good moment in time, but one of the next times that I saw him, I mean, he wasn't his usual smiling self. He was actually on the floor in the middle of a public area, curled up in a ball, mumbling to himself. And I remember standing over him and just wondering, who is this person on the floor? And what has he done with my friend Mike? You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Every episode, we hear stories of social justice and Christian community. Today's episode is where the gospel meets addiction. Okay, so for this episode, Jesse, you had actually suggested that I talk to your friend Mike, which I did. And for you, you already know a lot about Mike's story, right? Yeah, I do, but there's kind of this one section in Mike's life that's kind of a missing piece for me. You know, there were several years where Mike kind of went off the grid, and I honestly still don't really know what happened to him. Well, I think today I can actually clear some of that up for you. All right, let's do it. All right, and just a note for the listeners, addiction comes in many forms, but for Mike's story, his addiction involves drug abuse, and so that's the type of addiction we're going to focus on today. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. In 2017, our city faced an addiction epidemic involving heroin. Louisville is seeing a record number of overdose calls in 2017. At least 75 deaths have been attributed to drug overdoses in the first two and a half months of the year. But this isn't just an issue here in Louisville. According to a report from the U.S. Surgeon General, an estimated 21 million Americans struggle with a substance addiction. So chances are that you know someone who is an addict and that this topic hits a little too close to home. Yeah, that's especially true for you, Jesse, you know, in talking about your friend Mike today. But as with all addictions, you know, the story doesn't start with addiction. And, you know, Mike's story certainly didn't start with addiction. In fact, Mike's story started a lot like another story. Yeah, so in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, Jesus tells what will become perhaps one of the most well-known parables, and it's the parable commonly referred to as the prodigal son. Jesus starts the story like this. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Yeah, at this point in the story, you know, this younger son's got a lot of good things going for him. You know, he's young, so he's got a long life ahead of him. Now he's got access to his entire inheritance, so he's extremely wealthy. Things are going really good for this guy. And in Mike's life, you know, things were going pretty good, too. Yeah, I mean, Mike was a member at my church. He was actually one of the founding members of the church. He led worship on the worship team. We actually would play worship together on a regular basis. We were both singer-songwriters. And, you know, Mike was really present in my life during that season. You know, when I got married, 
at my wedding reception, I remember one of the very first people that ever came up to congratulate me was Mike. And I remember asking him right after, like, so who's this? He was like, that's Lindsay. And I was like, no, but who is that? And he was like, oh, that's my wife. I was the first person he said, that's my wife, too. I'm, that means something to me. But, you know, life has seasons. And so, you know, things for Mike were great, but they were also starting to get really hectic. I was working overnight shifts at the hospital on the weekends, newly married, going to school full time. I don't know why, but I decided that I wanted to be the class president of nursing school. You know, Mike wants a career helping people, so he's in nursing school full time. He's trying to also work on top of that. He's recently gotten married, so now he's trying to learn, you know, what does it mean to be a good husband and be a good supporter to his wife? I was just overwhelmed and started to have nervous breakdowns. And then one day, Mike's wife tells him that she's got some great news. She's pregnant. But for Mike, instead of being, you know, overjoyed at the thought of having a child, Mike gets even more stressed out. So now he's got to juggle school, work, being a husband, and also try to be a father on top of all of that. And, you know, of course, throughout this whole thing, his church is doing everything that they can to care for him. We need to love on Mike and we need to support him and, you know, write him notes of encouragement and pray for him. But even with all of that support and community, nothing was really easing Mike's mind until one day. So a strange thing happened. Um, I took my car to a car wash, like a do-it-yourself car wash, and I got the mats out, you know, so that I could vacuum under them and vacuum the mats. And as I'm putting the mats on the ground, somebody I think had like dumped their ashtray out on the ground or something like that, because there was change on the ground so Mike stops for a second and he looks at this change on the ground and suddenly everything starts flashing through his mind, you know, work, school, wife, now they're going to have a baby. And at the time, you know, Mike and his wife were barely making ends meet as it was. I mean, it was extremely hard for them to pay rent. And now the thought of also having to support a child, Mike didn't know how they were going to do it. And so out of sheer desperation, Mike actually gets down on his knees and starts praying. God, I need you to help me. I need you to take care of me. I don't know how we're going to pay rent. I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table. I've got a wife. I need you to help me out. He's like on his knees, like in broad daylight, like just praying. Yeah. Like he said, he had never done anything like that before, but he was that desperate. Whoa. Okay. And Mike could never have guessed what would happen next. I opened my eyes from this prayer, and there's this big, beautiful, stinky's a good term for pot, stinky piece of pot on the ground, like right in front of me. Wait, it's pot like a piece of marijuana? Yeah. How big was it? You've never smoked a bit of pot in your life. <laughs> it wouldn't matter if it was the size of a baseball or, <laughs> or a pin. Okay, so this stinky piece of pot, which for the record, it was about the size of a quarter, just so you know. But for Mike, this isn't just some piece of pot because Mike had actually been addicted to pot nine years ago. Okay, so actually there's some recent data that suggests about 30% of folks who use marijuana will actually develop an addiction to it. And if you start using before the age of 18, which Mike had, you are four to seven times more likely to develop an addiction. Yeah, not only that, but... 
using marijuana, it can completely alter your perception of reality. I mean, when Mike was using, he was a completely different person. And Mike didn't want to be that person anymore. So he'd been clean for nine years without even thinking about wanting to smoke pot anymore. Until now, on his knees, seeing that piece of pot at the car wash, Mike starts to think to himself that maybe this piece of pot is actually what he needs to relax. I stared that piece of pot down and I thought to myself, I know that either God or Satan placed this piece of pot in front of me. I'm not sure who it is. I'm pretty sure it was Satan, but I'm gonna go with the thought that it was God because I just prayed. So convincing himself that it's like an answer to prayer, Mike picks up the piece of pot, finishes vacuuming out the car, and then heads home. Yeah, but like, what's he gonna do with it? I mean, it's not like you can just like take pot, like you need a pipe or something to smoke it with. And I mean, Mike's been clean for nine years. So like, what's he gonna do with this pot that he found? Right, yeah, so he doesn't have anything that he can smoke it with, but Mike's pretty resourceful. And so on the way home, he stops and he buys a can of Red Bull. I don't even remember if I drank the Red Bull, but I remember that I crushed in the Red Bull to create like a concave section of the can and then poked holes in it with a needle to create a do-it-yourself pipe. So with his homemade pipe and his piece of pot, Mike takes his first smoke in nine years. I remember I listened to Led Zeppelin and I loved that. But then I started praying and reading scripture and writing a poem to God. And it, it was this strangely amazing spiritual experience that I had had. I felt like God was confirming like, yes, I gave you that pot, Mike, and I want you to smoke it. I want you to enjoy it. Okay, so let me just chime in for a second and just say this. There's a lot of debate around marijuana use in particular, you know, right now in the United States especially. So there's a bunch of states that have legalized it, and there's actually like a growing diversity even among Christians about its usage. And I don't know, I guess I just want to point out the fact that like our point in the story is not to say whether or not those things are right or wrong. Our point in the story is this. Mike knew that smoking that pot would reactivate his addiction. He just knew better. Yeah, and because he knew better, he then didn't want anyone to find out. So then he hid all the evidence. I put the pot and the pipe up in the attic of our apartment, and you had to, like, pull down one of those strings to get the ladder down and all that. I bought Visine, probably bought air freshener to cover it all up and something to freshen my breath, and I went to elaborate lengths. Of course, you know, one piece of pot isn't going to last Mike forever. And so when Mike needs more, he actually goes back to the same car wash and looks on the ground again. Like he's like hoping that like that is the spot where somebody else is like dumping their stash. Yeah, he's thinking like maybe God will provide me another piece of pot, which of course doesn't happen. So then Mike makes up a new game plan for how to get more pot. And then I drove to other car washes. And then I started driving around to like country roads and like trying to sense with my spirit sense radar where pot was located in fields. Okay, so so Mike is he's driving around randomly to fields and like putting his arms out and hoping like his ganja spidey sense is going to go off and it's going to like make him aware of where the Lord has put all of the weed that he needs is, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's totally ridiculous, right? But I mean, like, this is how much Mike is affected by using marijuana. Like, he's becoming slightly insane. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
And, you know, just like people with a mental illness, a lot of times that illness will take a religious bent to it. Mike's altered state of mind, it's sort of taking its own religious bent. I thought that God had given me that pot, so I wasn't going to go looking for a drug dealer. You know, that's not uncommon. A lot of people that do a lot of drugs believe that they're experiencing life on a spiritual plane when the rest of us that are not taking drugs are just sort of going, no, I don't think you're on a spiritual plane. I just think you're on something. Yeah, so get this. Shockingly, he doesn't find any pot in any field. That is not uh, that is not a surprising conclusion to that story. So Mike finds a dealer and he ends up buying more pot and he smokes it and then he buys more and then he smokes more. And pretty soon Mike gets to a point where he doesn't even want to spend time with people, with his friends, with his wife. The only thing he wants to do is smoke more pot. I wanted the chance to smoke pot if I had some or to go get some or whatever. Mike stopped going to church. He stopped leading worship at church. He eventually even stopped caring for his pregnant wife. I would just like pretend I was enraged, but mostly I just wanted to smoke pot. And then I would like storm out of the house. And one of those times I left and just stayed the whole night somewhere else. And then one of those nights turned into two nights. And then one time I came back and the apartment was empty. She had moved back in with her parents. She was gone. So now with his wife out of the house, Mike's not able to make the rent payment on his own. And so Mike starts living out of his car. But even that is not enough to break off his relationship with pot. Yeah, I mean, and that's how addiction works, right? We need more and more of the thing. And that becomes what our life is about. And so actually, let me jump in here for a second. So I actually sat down with a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. His name is Chris Wood. And he actually had something really interesting to say about addiction and relationships. I look at substances more so as a person developing in a relationship too. It's the primary relationship. So those other things don't really matter. Okay, so I really love what Chris is getting at here. He's getting this idea of primary and secondary groups. So I want you to picture a bullseye and in the center of this bullseye is you. And then the next ring out is the primary group. Those are the primary relationships in your life. So that is a spouse, that is children, that's parents, that's your closest friends. These are the folks that really know you. The next ring out is the secondary groups. These are folks like acquaintances and coworkers and people that you sort of casually socialize with. And of course, that's how healthy relationships are formed. That outer ring sort of exists in support of that inner ring. For an addict, they fill their primary group. So that first rung out, it doesn't get filled with people. What goes into that primary group is the addiction itself. They form a relational bond then with the thing that they're addicted to. It fills a relational role in their life. And then the next ring, where it should be secondary relationships, those are where the primary relationships get pushed. In our minds, a normal person might think, well, why would you want to run the risk of getting a, a, a DUI or losing your children or doing this? Why would you want to do that? Well, a substance user's mind is they have a, the relationship with the substance first and foremost, and they're willing to forgo anything that limits their ability to be in relationship with that substance. Which is exactly what happened with Mike. You know, eventually Mike pushed all the people and all the relationships out of his life so that he could keep pot in that primary group. 
Yeah, I mean, and the reality is that addiction is no respecter of persons. And so addiction affects all different kinds of people in all different corners of society. And the truth is that probably every single one of us knows somebody that is struggling with addiction. And it just gets really hard and confusing to know exactly like how should we even help? Yeah. And if you're one of those people, then you're actually in pretty good company because that's exactly how Mike's mom felt. I was angry. I was afraid. It was just devastating, to be honest. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Asha from Orlando, Florida. I made an impact on people living with addiction by serving for a summer with Love Thy Neighborhood. To experience your social justice internship and Christian community, visit lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Today's episode is where the gospel meets addiction. We're following the story of Mike. Unmanageable stress has led to Mike smoking pot and smoking pot has led to a full-blown addiction. And that includes abandoning his church, abandoning his family, abandoning his wife. And I guess this is where for a lot of us dealing with addiction gets tricky because we wonder how can we respond in a way that's loving? Denial cushions things for you. So this is Mike's mom. Her name is Marcy. It took me a long time before I realized the extent of his drug use. She told me that, you know, of course she never envisioned a life for her son where he was addicted to pot. In fact, it was the exact opposite. You know, she was very proactive in making sure her kids knew that they did not need to use drugs. I remember before I ever had kids reading an article for marijuana use. If you sat together as a family and ate dinner together, you drastically reduce the odds of your kids getting involved in marijuana. That was our pattern. If you know the story of the prodigal son, then I think you'd agree that the father is loving. But listen to what the father does when the son asks for his part of the inheritance. And he divided his property between them. After that, the younger son leaves and he lives this wild, reckless life. And the father allows him to. He allows him to go. Sometimes love requires that we draw near, but sometimes love requires that we actually let go. Yeah. So and for Mike's mom, trying to tell Mike that he needed to come back to his family, that he needed to stop smoking pot. But Mike wasn't listening and she realized she was going to have to let him go. I was courteous. I wasn't mean to Mike. But he was going to do things the way he wanted to, and I didn't approve of it. He knew, I felt like he knew what he needed to do to get sober if he wanted to, and he didn't. And, you know, even the folks at Mike's church were also trying to help him. They were trying to love him. They were trying to contact him, telling him to come back. They were really trying to convince me to to come back to God and come back to the church and set things right and be a good husband and be a good father. And I was a victim in my mind. Like everybody had done me wrong. But, you know, after repeated attempts and no response from Mike, eventually the church decided it was time to let him go. And so they sent Mike an email, which was the only way that they could reach him at this point. They had gone to great lengths to like write out an entire timeline of all the meetings that we had had and all the results of all those meetings. And they had 
written up this huge official document, you know, basically said, we followed the Matthew whatever process of one person, multiple people, the elders. You, you are now considered an unbeliever, not a member of this church. So quick note here, the Matthew thing that he's referring to, it's Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him in private. If he doesn't listen, bring one other person. If he still doesn't listen, bring it before the group. And since Mike wasn't listening, he was officially removed from the church. So some churches call this church discipline. But Jesse, people can have some mixed feelings about what is it for and is it healthy? So can you just kind of explain church discipline a little bit? Most people, it conjures up feelings of abuse of power, of like overly religious, strict sort of practices. And that that's just is not what was going on here. It was a really, really long process. This was not something that happened over a week or two. The goal of church discipline, of course, is it's not healthy for you to believe yourself to be a Christian when everything about your life is showing that you have no interest in following Christ. And the truth was that repeatedly, Mike just was not interested. And because you're disinterested in turning away from that, then what we want to do is is we want to love you enough to regard you as a non-Christian. This was not like in a tone of anger either. This was in a tone of like, I can't stand doing this to you, Mike. I'm so sad. And please, at any moment, interrupt me with repentance. So Jesse, you were actually at the member meeting where they announced that Mike was being removed. It felt like a living death. To this moment in my life, it is one of the worst days that I've ever experienced. Losing Mike that day and in the way that we did and under the circumstances that we did was just awful. And I just remember like all of us just crying and cry. I mean, there was not a dry eye in the room because Mike was one of us. Like Mike was one of the founding members. Like we had all this shared history and it was like, it was, it was a huge loss. Like I think we were probably supposed to be hopeful, but it honestly did not feel very hopeful in the moment. So Tim Keller writes, what the heart most loves and trusts, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. And what Mike's heart loved most was not his wife or his child, his family, his friends, his church, or even his God. What Mike loved the most was his addiction and the lifestyle that went with it. But it wasn't like he loved his addiction because, oh, I love how this addiction is destroying my life. Mike loved the addiction because the addiction was the thing that was going to help him through life the most. I mean, at this point, you know, he had done a lot of damage to his relationships in life. Well, how do you cope with those? Well, you check out. Well, how do you check out? You check out through your addiction. You know, I think the thing that just sucks in this whole thing is like what people need in that situation is they need to run towards people that love them, you know, but I don't, I mean, Mike didn't run towards us. So Rachel, tell me like, who did he run to? Well, welcome to California. What did you do out there? Like, obviously, did you work? Heavens no. (laughs) That's not what homeless people do. (laughs) Like, what was a typical day? A typical day involved a lot of walking around. I tried to sleep in, like, the same place of a park every night. And a lot of the time it was hanging out in the park looking for somebody to, like, bum pot from or smoke a bowl with. or That's a pipe bowl. 
and then the, the occasional journaling. Can I just jump in here and say that I love that he routinely wants to school the homeschool kid on all things associated with drug use. Well, you know, he's doing that for me. Yeah, totally. He didn't, he didn't think I knew what it was. So he's like, that's a pipe. I was like, I know what that is. Just because I asked you how big the pot was. You're like, I'm a professional journalist, okay? I'm making a note now. That's a pipe. Right. Eventually, after a month in San Francisco, I jumped in a van with a bunch of hippies and we headed on down the coast. So while he's in California, this is like a thing for homeless people in California is they go by nicknames. Nobody goes by their real name. Everybody has a nickname. And so while Mike is there, this group of hippies that he's jumped in the van with decide to give him a nickname. I don't know how, but I ended up with the nickname Jesus. I do kind of resemble the American version of Jesus when I grow my hair and beard out. So I think that might have contributed to it. But I think I also kind of loved the idea. And in fact, he was actually one of the most spiritual people that these folks in California had ever met. But because they thought, you know, he was so spiritual, Mike thought, you know, maybe his church back in Louisville had got it wrong. Maybe they didn't know what they were doing. Like maybe Mike could be an addict and be this like spiritual person at the same time. God was somebody that I was kind of maybe trying to like rearrange terms with, you know, like, okay, obviously I'm not the guy I used to be who believes that drugs are bad and this whole lifestyle, you know, that I'm involved in is bad. I, you know, I wasn't willing to like stop what I was doing, but I thought maybe I could find some sort of a middle ground with God where he was okay with what I was doing. And if Mike could find, you know, this middle ground, then Mike shouldn't just smoke marijuana. He should use any kind of drugs that he wanted, which is exactly what he did. I went from partying is a habit to it's my life. And it was basically my job every day to get as messed up as possible. A lot of LSD and ecstasy and this one hallucinogen called DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is the most powerful hallucinogen I've ever used. Okay, well, remember Chris Wood, the licensed alcohol and drug counselor that I spoke to? I actually asked him to explain what hallucinogens actually do. It alters reality, it alters perceptions, uh, it creates visions, people see things, they hear things differently, but what it does is it does kind of um, limit their ability to be in reality, and sometimes people view that to be more as almost a individuals having a psychotic episode, but it also does interfere with the serotonin, and that's what regulates moods. It can also interfere with the brain, brain chemical glutamine and that's kind of our pain perception our responses to the environment emotions and memories and at this point mike's been in california now for like six months and no one knows where he's at including his mom you know his mom had no idea and so here's his mom marcy again it was hard i was afraid for him didn't know where he was he didn't call me or whatever and i had no idea where he was i went to a retreat out at uh, Gethsemane. The Abbey of Gethsemane is a monastery that's just outside of Louisville, and it's actually a very popular place for people to go to to have, like, personal retreats and silence and solitude. And sat in the cemetery there, and they had an on that chair, and I was sitting there. I was so stressed and just meditating, and I asked God to take care of me. And I, that curve of the Anirondack chair 
felt exactly like God cradling me. And I was able to find some peace and trust that God would take care of my child. Marcy goes home after this retreat, and shortly afterwards, somebody calls Marcy on the phone, and they said they know where Mike is. He posted some things on Facebook, and I wasn't on Facebook, and a friend's daughter saw him, and she called me and said, he's in this place with these people. So, Jesse, you said you also saw Mike on Facebook, right? Very erratically, not very often. And it would say Jesus, you know, it didn't say Mike anymore. He was almost always in the woods. Uh, He almost never had a shirt on. He rarely had much clothing on, almost at all. He looked emaciated, like he looked like really malnourished. And he almost always looked inappropriately happy for the surrounding context, like manically happy. I mean, it was just very, very clear, like he was really sick. Yeah, and I just want to note that at this point in the story, some of the details might get a little disturbing. So Mike continues to use a lot of drugs, most of them being hallucinogens. Started thinking that there were like aliens in my body and like looking out of my eyes and using my body as like a machine to accomplish whatever it wanted. I thought that I was like going to become maybe the president or some special forces, highly classified agent. And I would consistently go to parties and be like, who the heck is that guy that is screaming like his spleen is being removed without any medicine? Like, I would scream like a like a newborn child that is screaming bloody murder, but with the, you know, strength and volume of a full-grown man. And eventually, the hallucinations Mike was having started actually mixing with reality the reality of his old life that he had had back in Louisville where he had a wife and he had a child. Started becoming scary hallucinations of my son. Yeah, I was hallucinating like that I was communicating with him and and connecting with him and that he was saying like, why am I not good enough? Why, Why are you not here? I miss you. I want you in my life. I need a dad, you know? And so that really started messing with me. It actually started messing with him so bad that Mike became suicidal. At this point in the story, things get a little bit tricky. So there's a lot of moving around for Mike. There's doctors involved. Mike's dad gets involved at one point who actually lives in Florida. But basically what happened is this. Mike's behavior got so bad that he was taken to the doctor. The doctor runs a background check and it's found that Mike actually has a warrant out for his arrest because he had not only been taking drugs, he had also been selling drugs on and off this whole time. And Mike forgot he had been busted selling LSD in Ohio. And so the state ships Mike to the Ohio jail. And from the jail, Mike calls his mom. While I was in jail in Ohio, my mom agreed to let me get out if I went to rehab in Louisville. So Mike reluctantly agrees. So his mom drives from Louisville to Ohio pays the bond to get him out. But as they're driving back to Louisville, it becomes very clear that Mike is not the same person. I picked that kid up at five or whatever, and it was snowing, and I pulled into a McDonald's, and he hadn't had a decision to make in a long, long time. It took me like five minutes to decide what to eat at McDonald's. And it wasn't like I was even really aware that it was taking me five minutes. 
I was just like, um, I'm still looking. I'm still looking. Um, I'm just still deciding. I'm just not sure, you know, for like five minutes. I did realize he was changed big time. Yeah. So the agreement was that Mike could get out of jail if he went to rehab. And so while Mike's waiting to go to rehab, he stays at his mom's house. But while he's at his mom's house, his behavior is so strange and erratic. It's almost like he's severely mentally ill. And Mike was just half crazy. He had used a lot of drugs and his brain was pretty much fried. I remember waking my mom up in the middle of the night one time and like dragging her into the living room. It's probably two in the morning or something. And saying like, watch, watch, watch what's happening on the TV. I was certain that they were literally talking to me specifically, you know, and she was like, nothing's happening, Mike. It's just a TV show. And I was like, but they're talking to me. They're like trying to get my attention. Mike saw things on TV. He thought the doorbell was wired to spy on us. His brain was so, so screwed up. You know, our our physical bodies are temporary. Like there are sometimes when our physical bodies just do not heal themselves. They just don't get better. And it was starting to look like for Mike that his addiction had so permanently damaged his brain and his body that he was not going to get better. Was recovery for Mike at this point even possible? We'll find out when we return. Stay with us. Hi, this is JC Williams from Louisville, Kentucky. I made an impact on people living with addiction by serving for a year with Love Thy Neighborhood. To experience your social justice internship and Christian community, visit lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. It's the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Today's story is where the gospel meets addiction. We're following the story of Mike. So Mike's mom has just gotten him out of jail and he's staying at her house while he's waiting to get into rehab. But even though Mike has stopped using drugs at this point, he is a completely different person. Most people know when someone is getting sober that there's a detox phase where your body really, really wants the substance and you have to fight through it and you are just miserable. But for Mike, he had used so many brain-altering drugs that recovery was going to mean more than just detoxing. So there's typically two stages that people that are coming off of hallucinogens go through. Stage one is acute, and then stage two is called post-acute. Here's Chris Wood again. The acute stage, which is the initial stage, it's going to vary for different things. But, you know, sometimes, especially individuals who have taken a lot of hallucinogens, they typically struggle with two things. And one is kind of persistent psychosis, which can be there, but then also just kind of flashbacks. Yeah. And one of the worst bouts of psychosis Mike had was actually while he was at his former church. So when Mike got back to Louisville, he actually contacted the elders of his former church. And at this point, it's actually been three years, three years since they've either heard from or seen Mike. And he even admitted like he didn't know why he contacted them. It was almost like a reflex reaction. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, we're like the safe place. We're like the only people he really knows in Louisville that really love him outside of his family. So that that makes sense. So after meeting with Mike, the elders agree that Mike can come to one of the services. But in the middle of that service, Mike ends up causing a huge scene. 
I thought I had become the devil, interrupted a service, went out in the hallway and was yelling and screaming about, I'm the devil, I'm the devil, like I'm, I'm Satan. Kind of like, I think you should kill me. And it was extremely intense. The pastor that had kind of been assigned to deal with the crazy guy, he later told me, if I've ever seen someone possessed by a demon, it was you, Mike. And it was that day. And he said it scared him to death. So I, I walked in, you know, shortly after everything had happened, but no one had really told me exactly what happened. All I knew is that I saw Mike and I hadn't seen him in forever. And I was immediately, I was like so excited to see him. But then as I walked up to him, immediately I was like, something is very wrong here because it just did not look like Mike. And that is about the time that Jesse said, we need to get you into Louisville Rescue Mission. So at the time I was working at Louisville Rescue Mission. And so I suggested, hey, Mike, come to the mission. Like, let us help you through this season. And so the very next day, I'm downstairs in the day shelter and Mike walks in and Mike starts trying to talk to me and none of his words were making sense. Like it was like nonsensical, you know, nothing. Like I would try to talk to him and ask him very, very basic questions. Like, you know, Mike, who have you seen since you got home? And he, he like couldn't really answer those questions. Or I would say, you know, are you thinking that you want to come into our program? And he couldn't really answer those questions. And I remember that, yeah, I remember after a few minutes, like he eventually, like he lays down on the floor and he curls up in the fetal position and he's mumbling to himself. Like it doesn't even, like he's not making sense. And, um, it was, it was really sad. I, I was really convinced in that moment that, uh, that there was no chance of Mike ever recovering, that all the drugs that he had done, that his brain was shot. Okay, so that's phase one, which is acute. And after a month or so of moving into the rescue mission, the psychosis goes away. And then that moves us into phase two, post-acute. Again, here's Chris Wood describing phase two. There's also kind of the post-acute stage, and that can last for up to 20 months. Uh, and so a person will experience anxiety, insomnia, moodiness, um, the inability to regulate emotions well. And that pretty much explains most of Mike's behavior while he's at the mission. I mean, here's how Mike remembers it. I was like on the verge of getting kicked out like the whole time. I wouldn't go to class or if we if I went to class, I wouldn't do the assignments. I think it was basically like you aren't showing us that you're even interested in being here because you're just laying in bed all day. This brings us to, I think, an important point. A lot of addicts, they're just in a stage where their brains are just incapable of receiving the amount of theological knowledge that we want to pour on them. You know, if I sat down with my eight-year-old, I don't think it's appropriate for me to talk about eschatology and to go into these really, really deep theological conversations. And instead of focusing on very, very simple truths about God's forgiveness, about God's presence, about God's delight in us, instead of focusing on very, very simple gospel truths, Christians come in with our agenda and we're like, hey, let me unload all the theological knowledge that I have into you because the transfer of this knowledge is the thing that's going to change you. And I'm not at all saying that the power of the gospel cannot change people. I fully believe that. But I believe that especially folks with a lot of theological education, they can really inadvertently dump way too much on recovering addicts when 
the addict is mentally just not capable of retaining all of that quite yet. Yeah, so in Mike's case, you know, while he was at the mission, he slowly started to recover and his brain started to heal. And so, you know, eventually towards the end of his time at the mission, he was actually getting out of bed. He was actually helping in the day shelter downstairs. He started to play guitar again. His sentences were actually making sense. And at that point, then Mike started to be able to actually really stop and look at his life and look at how he'd been living. And he started to see it a lot differently. Something significant changed while I was there. All the conversations I had with people that I used drugs with, like, there's no substance to it anymore. All of it was just like this empty game of me trying to get more drugs, and that was it. Like that moment in Pinocchio when all the kids on that island turn into donkeys. All my friends and I turned into donkeys in my life, in my reality. So with this new mindset and this new outlook, then Mike actually began the process of being restored back into his church community. And Jesse, you were actually a part of that process, right? Yeah, you know, if the last time that Mike was discussed at a church member meeting was one of the worst days in the history of our church, Mike's restoration was perhaps one of the best. At the end of Jesus' story about the prodigal son, the son returns home, just like Mike did. And in this case, the father is so overjoyed to see him that he throws this huge celebration and he says, the son of mine was dead, now he's alive, he was lost, and now he's found. And the day that Mike was restored to our church, like that is exactly what it felt like to all of us. Mike was so compromised mentally by the drugs that he had done that I was fairly convinced he was never gonna change. And to see Mike stand in front of the church and just so beautifully, eloquently share the story of what God had done in his life, it was one of those experiences that you have and you go, there must be a God. So during that whole restoration process, Mike actually wrote a song that he sang at the restoration ceremony. Here's actually a clip of that song. You said you make all things anew, the heavens and the earth, and you will. Said you take away our tears, our dying and our hurts, and you will. And as you fully know us, Lord, you said that we'll know you and what you say you do. And so the reality is, though, you know, Mike still had a lot of cleaning up to do. I mean, it wasn't like, here's this great ceremony and now everything's great. Like, he messed up his life significantly. I mean, he had maxed out dozens of credit cards. He was in tremendous debt. You know, he finally got in contact with his wife and she wanted a divorce. And so they went through that process and Mike had to, like, restore the trust in that relationship. So he was able to actually go see his son now. And slowly, God started to put his life back together. Today, Mike is remarried 
and he and his new wife have twin girls. Maybe daddy can blow some bubbles. Bubbles! Rock, rock, rock your boat gently to the shore. If you see a lion, don't forget to roar. Good roar, Jojo. Mike leads a small group at his church, and he's got a great job, and he actually has a really good relationship with his mom. I'd say we have an excellent relationship. You know, Mike's my son. He says things that irritate me sometimes. But, you know, we talk two or three times a week usually. I would say that this past that he had that's been very, very difficult has worked to bring us closer together. He's a joy to me now. But even better than that, Mike would say that the best thing is that he actually has a restored relationship with God. Believing that I'm loved by God feels like it's not fair. With all the crap that I've done and created, I totally messed up several relationships and abandoned my pregnant wife and did drugs galore and robbed people that I love and hurt people terribly. And now it's all good. It's yeah, it's just like it doesn't feel right. And I have to like choose to believe that God's ways are above my ways. And that when he says I'm forgiven, I'm actually forgiven. And when he says I love you, it's not when I'm good. You know, throughout this episode, we've referred to the story that a lot of Christians call the story of the prodigal son. But in more recent times, a lot of Christians have started to either call it the story of the two sons or the story of the prodigal God. Because really what it is, is a story about a God who is wasteful, being lavish with his love and his grace towards those that are undeserving. And I think, too, like that grace changes us. Like this whole story, this whole episode started out with Mike was super stressed and overwhelmed. And so to cope with that, he started smoking pot. And so I asked Mike, you know, do you feel some stress today? And he actually said this. I'm just like overwhelmed right now. I mean, I'm exhausted at work and then I come home and my girls are in a bad mood and needy and my wife is on the brink of exhaustion and I just feel like I can't give anymore I don't have anything and then like God reminds me good I'm glad you realized that because I've got it you know God's spirit like reminds me he's gonna finish what he started (sighs) it's such a relief If you'd like to learn more about Louisville Rescue Mission, you can actually go back to season one, episode three of this podcast, where the gospel meets homelessness. You can find that episode and more at lovethatneighborhood.org slash podcast. Special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Mike, his mom, Marcy, and Chris Wood. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Rachel Zabo, who is also our producer, technical director, editor, and robotic dancer. Additional editing by Janelle Dawkins. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and the Free Harmonic Orchestra. Our theme song and commercial music is from Murphy DX. Apply for your social justice internship supported by Christian community by visiting lovethyneighborhood.org. 
serve for a summer, pour for a year, grow in your faith and life skills. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise.